You are listening to The Sidebar, courtesy of the New York Association of Black Journalists, a program about the world of media as seen through the lens of black media makers. My guest today is, man, I don't even know how to describe this, this particular individual. You, you'd have to read this particular bio and, and you'll feel the way that I do. So I'll just keep it short and I'll let her do the particulars. No embellishments today because I'll get in my feelings. My guest today is Miss Amanda Armstrong Frank of Simon and Schuster. I'm going to frame it that way so that as we go along to this interview, you'll see that her accolades speak for themselves. Amanda, thank you for joining us today. How are you? I am well. Thank you so much for having me today, Mike. Very Let's- excited. Oh, man, I'm equally as excited. Let's take this from the beginning um, with a simple question that I love to ask my guests because I get all types of answers. Who is Amanda Armstrong Frank? Amanda Armstrong Frank is a daughter, a sister, a mom, a wife, a good friend, a good family member. Um, She is a woman that walks in faith and... She is also someone that works hard. That is who she is. Uh, might, might, might working hard be an understatement? Some people say it is. Um, I don't know that it's an understatement. It's the only way I know how to work. That's what um, my parents taught me. I was about to say that traits like that usually are instilled. We don't usually stumble upon them. Um, we really don't. So that comes from mom and dad. How, how pivotal were your parents to your growth and your success to where you are today? Um, my, my mom, I mean, my, my parents taught us that education is the key. But my mom, you know, for me and my sisters, we are first, um, first generation here in America. My mother is from Panama. Um, her mother was a white woman. Her father was a Spanish man. Um, with roots from Panama and Spain. My mother's um, mother's roots, my great-grandparents. My great-grandmother was a German-Jewish woman. My great-grandfather was a British man, white man, um, who taught the Indians in Panama how to speak English. Um, So my mom coming to America at the age of like 19, 18, 19, um, not knowing how to speak any English, and learning, we heard the stories all our lives about her learning how to speak English um, by watching I Love Lucy. That was, wow. you know, her, that was her thing. Now, we know that my mother learned some English in Panama because the schools that they went to, it was like a Jamaican school. There was like a, 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 I guess there was a place in Panama where there were Jamaicans at and they had a school. So she would come off the island of San Blas and go to school. So she knew some English. But not a lot. But, you know, when she got here, it was almost like she never went to college because she didn't understand. She watched Lucy and she started to educate herself a little bit more. My mother wanted to be a nurse, but didn't want to, you know, didn't feel like she could, you know, go to school here for that. And just always kept to a a different job, you know, working. I think one of her first jobs here was a factory worker. And she knew that that was not for her. And not that there's anything wrong with it, but she just felt like she wanted to do more. She always had a dream to help older people, elderly people. So she wanted to do more. 
by the time she met my dad, you know, he was working. He was on work, off work. My, my dad spent many years as a cab driver. But they also believed school is everything. And my mother would say to us all the time, I don't care what you do with your life when you get older. I care, but you're going to have to make decisions. But you're going to go to college and finish college. You're not going to have any children before then. You're not going to do anything. You're going to graduate high school, and then you're going to go to college. There's no break in between. There's right. no nothing like that was it for it was us. None of that. I'm going to find myself. No, what? <laughs> my mother would be like, I'm going to find you, all right? My father would say, you know, you got to go to college. So there's nothing. It's a it's an unspoken rule to this day where all of my sisters and my niece and nephew, all of our our diplomas, all of our degrees are on the wall of my parents' house. I was just about to bring that up because that is not necessarily something that is very familiar in homes of people of color. Yeah. Um, and I was going to ask you to expound on the wall when you walk in the house, you walk in to the right on the wall. <laughs> yes, like you walk into the right and our de our degrees are on the wall. And my mother and my father felt that that was what was needed. A, there was pride in it, but also to show each person below what you have to live up to, what you have to do. And the struggle is no different for you than it is for them. You know, we got to struggle to help pay for college, but you're going to get some kind of scholarship. You're going to get some kind of money to help as well. And you're a part of your learning. You're a part of paying for your schooling so that you know and you can respect what you're trying to learn. So, yeah, we have my two sisters, my younger sister and my older sister, they both went back and got their master's. Um, and those are on the wall. Um, my niece, went and went back to school. She's a doctor. So, you know, we have the pride in going to school. And I was taught at a very young age. I mean, my sister and I, when I played as a little girl, we played school. She was like the teacher. And I had a little, I had a little um, chalkboard, you know, that she would write lessons on for me, teach me how to spell, teach me how to sing. I mean, teach me how to write, teach me how to read. Um, I was very well off at that young age because of those lessons. So much so, a funny story I always say is that when when we moved, we lived in the Bronx. We moved to Co-op City when I was about four years old. And when I was turning five, I think, they were trying to get me into school. And I was supposed to go to kindergarten. But I took some tests because it was a new school. But I had done so well in preschool that I skipped kindergarten and went to first grade at five years old. Oh, wow. Because I knew, you know, you asked me, what's your name? And I could not only tell it to you, but I could write it. I could read it. I could read all of the Dr. Seuss book before I got into first grade. Wow. So education was big for us. Definitely a, a proponent of a quality education at an early age. Early. And, and again, that's not something that's, you know, overtly popular and especially in today's day and age, just kind of right. you know, feel your way around, get get to get to your spot, however you get to your spot. With that being said, let's move, let's move along a little further. Now that's the background. Now we have the foundation set. Undergrad, I believe, is LIU. Is that, is that correct? LIU CW Post. CW Post. All mm -hmm. right. We finish our undergrad. 
what is that search like for your first job? Well, you know, interestingly enough, I got out of college and so I went to school for um, I got my degree with a major in political science and I had a minor in in criminal justice and pre-law because I always wanted to be a lawyer. And to this day, one of my uh, dear best friends, an older woman, she has always said between her, my father, my husband, so many people say you should have been a lawyer. Because you, they're like, you can argue down any point. You got to answer for it and you can argue it down. So when I got out of school, I didn't want to be a lawyer because when I was in school and looking at the LSAT and everything else and thinking about what it means to be a lawyer really means, my conscience would never allow me to get someone off who I know is guilty. Right. For me, that just wasn't, I couldn't do it. That wasn't going to happen for me. And I really just sort of stumbled into working. I went back then, you know, I went to like um, a, a, a job agency looking for a job. I was really good with computers and understood it where I could teach it, where I knew it. Um, and when I say computers, I mean software. Right. Um, so I kind of stumbled into a job actually at Barnes and Noble in their corporate office. And I was never a girl, even in the um, summer times when I was in high school and stuff. I never worked in retail ever in my life. Not mm-hmm. a day. Never. Mm-hmm. Not a day ever. No, my internships were like at a bank, <laughs> okay. uh, at my mother's job, at a law firm. I've never worked retail. So when I got to Barnes and Noble uh, and worked in a corporate office, I still didn't know retail, but it was allow it was allowing me to learn about communication and relationships. And I built more on um foundational understanding of software and databases so i worked there for a few years i was able to get like a promotion each year and in my fourth fifth year i met someone from simon and schuster was actually the head of sales um at simon and schuster but he wasn't head of sales yet he was still head of um it and he came to my job i was working on a project and I was telling them, I was cleaning up databases, and I was telling him that the Simon & Schuster database was missing information and needed some other information, and why weren't they selling better? They didn't have enough books, they didn't have enough titles, they didn't have enough of something. And then I was telling him something was messed up, and he said, no, it's not. And I argued back and forth with him, because that's what I do. That's what you and if do. I know I'm, if I know I'm right, I'm right. Right. I said to him, well, you know what? No problem. You go back to your office. When you find a problem, you let me know. You'll see what I'm talking about. No, no, no. And I'm sure he left thinking, that little cocky black girl, right? Right. Because again, back then too, there weren't a lot of people that looked like me, especially in my position at the job I was in. I was like one of two managers out of, I don't know how many in that corporate office that were black or Hispanic. And so he got back a week later and called me and said, oh my God, I can't believe you were correct. And I want to interview you. I want you to come work here. I don't know what you're going to do. I don't know anything. I went in, had an interview and he said, I don't have a title. I don't even have a budget. I don't know. You tell me how much you want to make. I know one thing I want you to do and we'll create a title. That's how I got into publishing. And while I was in Barnes & Noble, I learned about publishing in the sense that I learned who all of the salespeople were. I knew who, who did what books. 
And I also knew who did what kinds of books. So by the time I got to Simon & Schuster, you know, I knew about different terms and what they meant. I knew that, you know, for any publishing house, the meat of your dollar comes from books that are in your library, not just the new books. I knew that that new books, you only expected 20% of them to actually be your big books. 80% of books that you publish are going to fail. Or well, when I say fail, I should say are not going to be your bestsellers. Okay. 80% is just going to be midway. That's not what pays the bills. It's the 20% that are the bestsellers that are selling millions. That's going to be your bread and butter. So, you know, that's sort of how I got into publishing. And once I started, once I got my foot in, then I was like, oh, okay. The same thing that I did at, at Barnes & Noble when, to get me this job, you know, I talked about what's called a backlist. And those are old titles, how they sell, how they can sell better, what we sell. So I created a, a um, report that became industry-wide standard for how you get your books right, how you sell those books. So that was like my first big thing. And then while I was there, because again, I was the only person that looked like me in a title that was not entry level or junior level. Um, I was sort of mid middle management. And I started to create other um, automatic uh, types of ways to do things in the company. And that propelled me to also learn how to do what we called our co-op advertising, right? Which is what you see in the store as a display or on the table to sell. I created all of that. So for me, getting into publishing at that point too, I thought, you know what? I want to be the person that publishes books, that puts the books and decides the books that go into the hands of children that look like me. And at that same time, as I was doing that, I started to notice and look more around me like, there are not a lot of people that look like me in publishing. Why is that? What is that? How can I change that? And that is what started me on the journey to where I am now. Going through your resume from, and this is this is one of the most telling things to me I've ever experienced in my life, is that from June of 94 to January of 2000, a six-year period, right? Actually comes out to probably a little bit more, maybe a month or so shy of seven years, roughly when you add the time frames up, right? Right, right? We're looking at from trade sales representative to manager of cooperative advertising and sales analysis. You have roughly a every year and a quarter that promotion. You're going here. We're here. Boop. Year in, in, in 11 months, we're here. Boop. Another year in 11 months, we're here. Two months, two years and one month, we're here. What do you attribute that level of promotion to? Um, is, it, is it preparation? Is it the ability to speak? Is it a combination of both? Like people stay at jobs and don't people go through their whole lives and don't experience that kind of upward movement in one institution. They usually have to leave, go somewhere else, work there for a little bit, get promoted there, leave there, take the promotion at another job. Like you didn't go that route. You don't have the 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 hopscotch route. You have the straight vertical ladder route. What do you attribute that to? I think it is a combination of both. But I think also what I always tell people when I'm mentoring, I always say you need to know 
what your job is, know it well, but also know all the jobs around you that you have to interact with. Know what those jobs are and know how they work, know how they run, know how your your job impacts another job. Know how your decision impacts the decision that they have to make. That's very important because once you learn everybody's job around you, that makes doing your job easier, but it also makes you more comfortable in speaking. It makes you understand the job, not just your job, but understand the process of the jobs ahead of you. So, you know, if I am in, you know, if I am in, if I'm in editorial in publishing, I need to know marketing and publicity, right? I need to know um, production because my what I do hits all of those things. I need to know how does it hit those things? How does what I do impact those things? Does it not matter? But if it does matter, how and why? And communicating becomes easier when you know that because now you know more. You can ask the right questions. You're not asking the basic questions anymore. You're asking different questions. People see that. People hear that. And then they go, well, wait a minute. That person's in that job. And they're asking all these other questions related to another job. So they know how their job impacts that. That's what it is. Okay. Okay. That that that, that works. Let, let's move. Let's transition this along because you know, it, it just seems like as you climb the ladder, you don't just have a familiarity with where you're going. It seems as though you've been diligent to know exactly what's required and where you're going while simultaneously having, for lack of a better word, acquired a significant understanding of the position you were in and where you're going. So you can look back with pure clarity and look ahead with objectiveness knowing where you're going, what you've gathered from behind you. How does diversity play a part in this? Like, when did you decide, you know what, let me be the change. Let me help facilitate the change. Because that's really what a diversity and inclusion officer of, I don't care how you slice it, that's what you're theoretically saying. I need change. I want to be the vehicle for change. And this is how we're going to do it. How did you come about that? Well, I'll tell you two things. The first thing was outside of my job. So I work in Rockefeller Center. There's a whole concourse beneath. Um, and, you know, Rockefeller Center has all the tourists, all kinds of companies. Fox News is over there. Ice skating, and, the tree. NBC, NBC Rainbow Dirty Room. Rock, right? Dirty Rock, everything. Dirty Rock, yeah. And there's a store downstairs. It's called, um, I forget the name of the drugstore. But it's a, you know, it's a pharmacy and a drugstore. Almost like, it's like a Dwayne Reed, but smaller. Okay. okay. And I went in there one day looking for a relaxer because I relaxed my hair. And when I went in the store, I said, well, we need relaxers. I don't see any relaxers. Actually, I don't see any black hair care. We don't sell black hair care. Well, what do you mean you don't? Yeah, we don't sell that here. You have to go to another store. Excuse me? You, you're here. All the tourists are here. You don't sell anything for black hair care? No, we don't. At that moment, in my mind, I thought, wait a second. Here I am in the middle of, you know, the middle of Rock Center. So I, I was with my best friend and I walked out of the store and every person that was walking into the store 
I said, don't shop in there. They don't they don't have black hair care. They don't want it. They think that we, we don't need it. They don't they don't need to cater to us like they do everybody. Everybody that I left that store all the way until I got to my building. That was the first thing where I thought, mm, what's going on? Why what is that? Hey, if you're enjoying this particular episode, please subscribe and don't forget to leave a good review. And as a reminder, if you wish to reach us or learn more about us, www.nyabj.org. And now, back to the program. My first year in my job, there was a title that they were putting out. And I was so, I guess, I was so impacted by the title. And I, I said, how can we publish a book with that title? What, what do you mean? Well, that's the title. I said, the author once. I was like, yeah, but that's going to affect people from my background. Like, that affects white people. There's nothing. You can't. You cannot make this book this title. And I was in there with the head of sales and the head of publishing in this meeting. Now, I'm. it's my first year. I'm middle level, but not, you know, I'm not up at the top. I'm not in any of those decision-making places. But I was very adamant about that. And I talked and I kept talking about it and kept, and I was so furious. And then I had to meet with them again. And they said, well, we met with the author. The author doesn't want to change the title. And I kept fighting. And I said, you know, if you had somebody in the room when they were talking about this title, you would know that you shouldn't make it this title. And you making this title is like a statement. You know, how do you make that? How do you make that the title? So much so, by the third week, they came back and said, the author won't change the title, but what we're going to do is we're going to put the title in quotes so that the title becomes more of more about the person's opinion, like what they said, instead of making it a statement, like this is what it is. And that was the first time I thought, hmm, there's nobody here doing that. There's nobody in those rooms talking. And at that point, too, because I spoke up, they... They started bringing me all of the books by anyone that was black, especially black or Hispanic, but black. And then any um, authors that were black that they they didn't know enough about as if I knew who everybody was. <laughs> but, but I made it my business at that point when they talked about a person, I would look that person up and I'd be able to say, well, look, I don't represent the world, but I have three sisters. And we're all a little different and we represent different things. And I would talk to them about titles and say, hey, we're going to do this book. What do you think about this? What do you think about this? Well, this is not what I think. And I would go back to them. So I think, you know, at that point, I started realizing there's nobody here to do this. There's nobody here that's going to do this. Um, we had a diversity council. It got started. And for three years, I couldn't get on it because they would put people on it. And I guess they thought, oh, she's a little bit too much, maybe. But they would have a lot of um, people in senior um, leaders in that council. And by the third year, I guess <laughs> the head of HR got so tired of me saying, when can I get on? When can I get on? They finally let me on. When I got on this council, I was like, why aren't y'all doing anything? Like, where are the programs? What are, what are y'all doing in here? How come you have, a, you have this council going for three years? I've not heard anything that's going on. And now I see y'all haven't presented anything. Um, and it started to get me more and more into what are you doing? They let me on. I helped develop quite a few programs. And we started to listen to the voices. And we started to talk about 
pipelining for the company, we started talking about content and character. Um, and I think that that's, you know, where where I started to get more and more of a vision and more and more of a voice. And mind you, the council is a voluntary role. So I would do all of this. We meet every month for hour and a half, have meetings with subcommittees. I would do that. And it was a voluntary role. It's not anything you paid for. It's not anything that's part of anything. It's just, you know, you want to do better. You know, you want the company to do better. And I wanted to see more people that look like me. I didn't want to be able to count them all on one hand or two hands. I didn't want to know everybody's name. Because when there's enough of you, I don't know your name. And that wasn't happening. And I, I wanted to be a part of making that happen. And that's how I got into that whole council. But becoming a DEI officer of the company was something totally different. And listen, um, we're, not, we're not just talking about a DEI officer of a company. We're talking about the DEI officer of Simon & Schuster, which arguably, I mean, if you got another publishing house, I'm with it. But if you want to take the Coke and Pepsi example, I mean, Simon Schuster would be Coke. Like that's that you you say publishing. You people that don't know publishing, the first thing they say is Simon Schuster. Where'd you see that? Or on the on the on the bounds of a book in the library, or uh, I was in Barnes and Noble, or there was something on the counter at Walgreens while I was waiting to to, to pay for my, for my my items. I you, there's there's this magazine there that will paperback, and it got Simon Schuster. Like. It's not just any company. It's Simon & Schuster. So when you look at your career to this point and you look at where it's been, how do you feel when you look at, you know, the diversity officer of Simon & Schuster? You know, I say it's my dream job because it is something that I wanted to do. And when I look back and see how I got here, I think to myself, wow, I got here because I never thought that I never thought that I would be in the position that I'm in. Um, I always thought, you know, again, I moved around in my company. I started from sales. I went to finance, corporate finance. Then I went to operations to get a good breath of what we did in the whole company, understanding the warehouse, understanding how books are done. And realizing now, all that was preparing me for the role I'm in right now, to be able to understand the employees of our company, to understand what we need to fix, to understand what we need to strengthen. You know, looking back, I just look at all the, the pieces and think, wow, you know, how, how did you become? Because to be honest, you know, I was the one that suggested along with my counsel and another imprint that suggested they they hire a DEI person. Not thinking about myself at all. I had not even thought about myself. But it was, you know, we watched the murder of George Floyd. And that Monday when I came to work uh, on Zoom, because, you know, at that point you had so many Zoom meetings, and our publisher had recently died and um, earlier that month, actually. And um, I, watching that, I called and contacted the head of HR. Um, I think they contacted the head of 
uh, the chief financial officer and our CEO, because I sent them all a note saying, your black and brown people are tired. We can't work today. We watched our brother, cousin, uncle, son, best friend, the kid at the corner store, the neighbor. We watched him get murdered. And we can't show up in a Zoom room. We don't care about a book. We don't care about a budget. We care about nothing today. We need a break because we've been through so much. This is not the first time. It's the first time all of you are seeing it. But we have been through Trayvon Martin, Breonna Taylor. We've been through too much. We need a break. PTSD. We have PTSD. Yeah, exactly. And we need we need tomorrow off, is what I said to them. We need tomorrow off. And nobody needs to have to worry about can they take it? Do they have a day? Is it a, They just need it off. Period. The end. After getting them to do that and have a blackout day also on all of our social media, when we went, when I had a conversation with them again, they called me back. And, you know, I said, this is what, as a council, this is what we think you need. And so we, I said, we need this, we need this, we need this. All this, we also need to know, are we making any kinds of um, donations to Black Lives Matter, as well as, as well as so many other organizations? And, you know, we are owned by Paramount, which was back then Viacom, CBS, CBS. Um, so we had to see where they were donating because that's that's our parent company. So right. we can't donate outside of what they do, but also to be able to acknowledge that. So when they came back to me and said, you, you know what, we you're right. We, we realize that we need a DEI officer. What do you think about that? And I said, it's great. That's what I've been telling you all along. You need it. And they said, no, you. What about you? And I had that same feeling I had when I started in Simon Schuster. I don't know what you're going to do. We don't know what you want to We know that we need this. We don't even know what all of this encompasses, but we want you to do it. And I just got back to that whole feeling of this is what I've been preparing for, not knowing, not realizing, not understanding. But I've always been someone who wants all of us to just rise. I I always want to support. I always want us to rise. And I can't be in a job and in a company where I'm not supportive of that and trying to make that happen. When I say the word diversity in corporate, not just diversity, but diversity in a corporate setting, what does that mean to you? Diversity means a lot of different things. I know a lot of times we get stuck on, but is it race? Is it ethnicity? Yes, it's that. But there's so much more. There's ageism, there's generational, there's sizes, there's abilities, there's gender, um, there's the whole LGBTQ plus community, it's all of that. And in our company, you know, we have a large LGBTQ plus community and they're at all levels of the company from the top down, they're at every level. Our company is very female centric. We have lots of females all over the company. And we have a lot of men too, right? And don't get me wrong, we we have diversity in our company. There are a lot of Asian, Hispanic, Black. We have we have quite a few, but not more than twenty. I don't think. Well, not that I don't think that I know. Okay. Um, 
And so to me, those are all the things we talk about, things that we can actually monitor and put metrics to is what we know. We can't put metrics to, you know, LGBTQ+, because you got to self-identify as that. Not everybody wants to do that. We can't identify um, gender all the time, right? Because some people won't want to say that they're transgender. We don't always know about the politics and the religion of someone. But what we do know is race and ethnicity, because everyone has to mark that. So diversity is a lot of those things. It's making sure we have all of those things and not just ones or twos, but have them. I always say, I don't, I, I will be ready to leave my job and you will no longer need my job once we're at 50%. If we have 50%, it's 50-50 now, it's all fair. I can go and I mean 50-50 for everything. Right, right and down I'm the middle, ready. right down the middle. 50. Right down the middle. That's it, you know? So that's diversity to me. Diversity is having all of the people, all different, all different types, all different kinds, all different everything. That's diversity. Let's shift gears a little bit and let's yep. talk. Let's talk to um, the individual who may be listening to this podcast, mm-hmm. the individual who may know someone who's listening to this podcast that looks at themselves in the mirror and says, yeah, I got a lot to talk about. I probably could write a book. I wouldn't know where to start. What would you say to them? I would say, start writing down your thoughts, right? You want to write a book? Start writing down, what do you want to write a book about? Start to write. To, remember how you'd be in school and when you had to write a paper, they'd say, start with your outline? Start with your outline. I always say to everybody that has an idea, whether it's a book or an idea about a plan, a program, I always say blueprint it out. You know, when you blueprint it out, you're putting all the thoughts together. You're putting down everything you want it to be. Then research. Research, okay, this is what I want to talk about. Who else has talked about this? What other books out there are like the ones that I think I want to write? What's Look, I always tell people, everybody, I tell authors this all the time, know your competition, right? What else is out there? What is out there that's been successful and what's out there that's not successful? So I know what not to do, right? Right. I know what's what's succeeding. Men know the industry, right? In a sense of in order to get something published, if you want to go to a big publishing house, I, I should say, okay. if you want a major publishing house, look at a list of agents. They've got them on site. There's a list of agents throughout the country. Get yourself an agent because no publishing house you're going to look at your book, look at what you want to do without an agent. If you don't care about that and want to self-publish, that's something different. Independent publishing is different. Um, look up hybrid publishing online. There's a whole list of what you need to do. But I would also say to you, understand everybody has a story to tell. Doesn't mean everybody should write that story, right? It's <laughs> true. This is <laughs> quite true. Right. Every, you know, I get, I, I work a lot of times with a lot of debut authors, um, look, in my side life, right, and talk to them about writing and people, sometimes, you know, people say, oh, my goodness, you'll kill somebody's dreams, because I'll say that, you know, you wrote something that doesn't make sense, or why is your story important? If you can't explain why your story is important, then whoever's going to sell your story or sell your work 
they can't explain why it's important. You you need to know those fundamentals. And on top of that, don't write your whole book yet. And I say don't write your whole book yet because when you write your whole book, you spend time, right? Nobody writes in a day or two. It takes years for a reason because life gets in the way. Life happens. You think, oh, yeah, I'm going to write this book. I got it. I'm in two, three months, I'm done. A lot happens in two to three months. You put it down, you set it aside, you come back to it. So things change. When you spend all that time writing your, your book, your book becomes your baby. When you submit that baby to an agent and they send it to an editor when, when they're ready to sell, between the agent and the editor, they start to edit what you've written. And then you don't want to make changes because that's your baby. They didn't live what you lived. You wrote it down. You don't want to change it. And then it becomes a very contentious conversation. So my suggestion is write out what you think you want it to be about. Hone that first, you know, and understand, understand the audience that you want to read it and understand anyone else who's written about it. What makes your story unique from others? Because everybody could write about being a parent. Everybody could write about being a wife or a husband. Not everybody, but people married, right? Right. People, everybody can write a book about growing up. But what makes your story different? What's going to grab an audience? That's what you have to think about when, you're, when you want to write a book. I would like to say <laughs> thank you for providing this time with us here on the sidebar, the podcast of the New York Association of Black Journalists. And my name is Michael Ray. Um, you have been listening to a fabulous, fabulous conversation with Mrs. Amanda Armstrong Frank, diversity and inclusion specialist of the highest regard for <laughs> publishing powerhouse Simon and Schuster. My last question, Amanda, as we walk out the door is as such, if Amanda could pick up the telephone and have a conversation brief, two minutes with Amanda Armstrong before the Frank, what would you say to her? I would say your prayers will be answered personally and professionally. You're going to be okay. You will be noticed. You will be heard. And even though, even though your father's gone now, you're going to hold him tight. And you're going to remember everything he taught you throughout, and it's going to help you. That's what I would say. Amanda, thank you. Thank you. We wish to express our most sincerest thanks to our distinguished guests. If you have enjoyed what you've heard, please subscribe and give The Sidebar a great review. As a reminder, the views and opinions expressed in every episode of The Sidebar belong to the individuals who made them and not to the NYABJ. For more information on the NYABJ, please visit www.nyabj.org. Music by Halizna Raps.